all. So I would love it if we could pray, not right now, but you know, as, as it comes to mind, that this baby come today. <laughs> no, uh, so I'm here with my, my wife, Diana. My two little girls are, are with the children, uh, Sarai and Maya. One, the oldest is seven, the youngest is five. I had to think about that, that's bad. The uh, youngest is five. Uh, and my sister is here from Boston. So <clears throat> as he said, I actually attended uh, Grand Prairie Bible Church um, in 2011. I, w- I, was at, I was attending Grand Prairie Bible Church, and that's where I first met Bill and met, uh, some of you kind people. And it's been a joy uh, to worship with you at that point. And then the Lord called me to New York. And I was an associate pastor in a church called Webster Bible Church in Webster, New York, upstate New York, a suburb of Rochester. I was there for about five years, uh, working with that church, doing a revitalization act there. And while I was there, the Lord called me uh, back to kind of uh, kind of my roots, to, to, to join in the work of representing Jesus well in the inner city context. Uh, and so uh, my friend Eric, as you guys know, uh, we talked on the phone many hours, many days, a lot of times. My wife would be like, oh, you're talking to your boyfriend again. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're talking on the phone I mean, many, many times, many, a lot of praying. And by God's grace, he provided an avenue uh, for us to join, join forces and plant this church in the inner city context. And so by God's grace, we'll be launching Pillar Church in August of 2019. Uh, the goal date is August 4th. That's the date we are pushing to make. Right now, I think we're going to make it. And so uh, right now, things have been, uh, been good. It's been, it's been a blessing from God. Um, should I say anything else about me? Or are we good? You're good. Man, go ahead and open your Bible. This is weird talking about yourself. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to consider a passage out of Acts chapter 20. But while you're turning there, I want to tell you all a little bit more about me. When I was a kid, uh, there was a series, a four-show series that used to come on every Friday night. It was, it, the segment was called TGIF. I don't know if you all remember TGIF. TGIF, it stood for Thank God It's Friday. That's just what they named it. And there were four shows that would come on. And I remember being a little kid sitting on the edge of my mom's bed. My, you remember that, right? See, I tell you the truth up here. I tell you the truth. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the edge of my mother's bed. She had a small TV in her room. And I'd be sitting there kicking my feet up. And we're watching these four shows. Uh, and they just came on back to back. And I, I, I remember that, and that's part of what I like to reminisce when these shows come on. But there was a show that came on before TGIF segment was created that helped to pave the way for that segment to even exist. And I only know that because I watch a lot of documentaries. There's a show that came on. All of you have heard of this show. I loved watching this show. My kids love watching this show. It was The Cosby Show. Man, the Cosby Show was incredible. The Cosby Show portrayed uh, a, a, a nice uh, a family who, who, who raised their kids in a healthy manner. Uh, they were an African-American family. The father was a doctor. The mother was a lawyer, which was not common where I was from. And, and they just seemed to have all the types of values that you want in a family. The Cosby Show, and it was funny, and you laughed, and you cried, and you caught yourself. And if you're like me, you don't like to admit this. But you know you're watching a show, and then you catch yourself smiling as you're watching it, because I'm not an emotional dude, but you, I'm sitting there like, because mm, I'm watching the show, because it's just wholesome. It's good. It's, it's, it's good entertainment. That show paved the way for TGIF, and there's a man who was behind that show, and you all know Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby 
through his influence, helped generations pursue higher education, and particularly my generation. Uh, I wouldn't have known about uh, the importance of college if it wasn't for the push of Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, uh, not only did he push for young, uh, young academics, for people to, to, to chase the academic realm and to chase college, that wasn't it. Uh, he would also chase good family values. Bill Cosby would do a number of things. He put a, a cartoon on the map. I don't know if y'all know about this cartoon, but y'all ever heard of Fat Albert? Come on. <laughs> Fat Albert. Hey, 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 who said that? My man. Yes, sir. He, man, he was just a stalwart, right? I don't think I have to tell any of you about what's going on with Bill Cosby these days. You can, if you don't know what's going on, you can Google Bill Cosby and you'll see what's happening with him, serving an extraordinarily long sentence for a very heinous crime. What should come to mind as you think about Bill Cosby is the word legacy. Legacy is important. Legacy is the fingerprint you leave on this earth. You know what's unique about legacy? It takes years to build. It's a slow build. It's brick by brick. But it takes one mistake to be like a demolition ball and knock the whole wall over. Legacy is important. Legacy is huge. Uh, we all are leaving legacies. Pastor Eubanks, as he, as he departs here, left legacy here. When I was in New York, I left and left legacy there. This morning, we're going to talk about legacy. We're going to talk about the legacy that the Apostle Paul left. We're going to talk about our legacy. And we're also going to talk about what Jesus has to do with our legacy. And this is a, a message for young, for midlife, for old. It doesn't matter. Uh, this, this, this concept of legacy applies to everyone because everyone here is building legacy, whether you acknowledge it, realize it or not. When I say the word legacy, uh, the, the name like, a name like Moses should come to mind. Like when I say Moses, you think the man God used to, to free the Israelites from the bondage of Israel. That should come to mind, uh, the bondage of Egypt. That should come to mind. When I say like MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., you think legacy, who have opened the eyes of a nation, right, and lead to greater equity and equality. That's legacy. These are the people who left a mark, a fingerprint, a people that they could not be denied. That's legacy. And God uses legacy to, to change the trajectory of the future. You know what else is unique about legacy? Legacy is communicated verbally, but it's better communicated by observation. You guys all know the motto, you know, don't, you know, do, don't do what I say. Or what, is, what is the motto? Do as I say, not as I do, right? That's the worst. You can't train children with that motto. You can tell them all you want. They do what you do because legacy is left through observation. It's not left through oral tradition. Oral tradition is good and you use it, but what you do is what's going to shape your kids. And that applies to you if you're a believer in this room or not a believer. You're leaving a legacy behind you. And it's important that we think about legacy before our deathbed. Because that's the only time you ever hear about legacy coming out. Legacy, bless you. Legacy comes to mind when we think about our deathbed. When times of departure is occurring, that's when we tend to slow down and think about what, what footprint have I left in this sand? This morning's text, we're seeing a time of departure. And we're seeing the Apostle Paul as he's going to recount his legacy in Ephesus. 
If you'll look quickly, we're going to skip around in this passage because he's not a linear thinker in this passage at all. But we're going to skip around and try to bring some linearness to it. Look at verse 36 through 38 in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 36 through 38. He says, and when he had said these things, let me just turn this brightness up. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the words that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. We'll stop there. This is Paul's goodbye to the Ephesian elders. This is a man who helped birth a church in the city of Ephesus, and he's departing from them. This is a, a, a very emotional time, and, and they're, they're most sad because of the words that he spoke, that, that he, he would never see them again. This is when legacy gets real, when, you, when there's departure happening. But before he leaves, he recaps his legacy that he left them. And so we're going to look at what he said to them, uh, what does that mean for us, and what does, what does Jesus have to do with our legacy. Go forward now, go backward now to verse 17, and let's try to walk through this passage. But I wanted you to see that the time of departure is of essence. This is a sad time right now. So, so get your mind, try to be contextually relevant right now. Uh, Paul is sad. He's praying with his elders, and he's about to leave them. Verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, this is Paul's words. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Stop there. First point of this sermon is that Paul leaves a legacy of suffering. Who is Paul to them? Paul is their spiritual father. Oh, Paul's the one who births this church. It's someone they look up to. You guys ever think about the Apostle Paul in, in, in these terms like he's a beast? You ever read the scriptures and you're like, man, Paul's a beast. Just a theological juggernaut. Man, Paul endures all kinds of hardships. Man, Paul's a beast. But when you read the text, his self-description is anything but beastly. His self-description is one of weakness and pain. Look what he says in verse 19. He says he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to him at the hands of the plots of the Jews. Paul is expressing his weakness. It reminds me of a conversation Paul has with God in 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10, God tells Paul that his grace is sufficient for him and that God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And then Paul responds to God by saying these words. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's not a beast. Paul's a weak man leading weak men. And that's okay. You see, the one thing everyone in this room has in common is that we are broken, hurting, and weak in some way, shape, or form. All of us. 
All of us are broken. We're suffering in some way, shape, or form. And no matter what our social media page says, the reality is that we hurt a lot. It's funny flipping through Facebook and flipping through Instagram, and everybody just seems so happy. What a facade. The fact of the matter is we hurt far more often than we acknowledge. I hurt far more often than I acknowledge. For many people, being weak is an identity issue. We can't portray ourselves as being weak because our identity is in our strength. See, the problem with putting our identity in our strength is that what happens when your strength fails you? Your identity is thus lost. And when your identity is lost, where does that drive you? Bitterness, suicidal thoughts, helplessness. See, the blessing of being weak is acknowledged, uh, the blessing uh, that Christ gives us is that we can acknowledge that we are weak because we have one who is strong on our behalf. We have Jesus the Christ, and our duty isn't to be strong, our duty is to be what we are and then lean into his strength. And so Paul goes and he acknowledges the fact that he cried many nights in Ephesus, that he was the the subject of insults and calamities all throughout his time in Ephesus. And he's saying, fellas, I'm weak. I was broken in front of you, but God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Is it not, fellas? He's reminding them of this because they need to remember it. Paul's leaving his church. Paul's leaving the church that he outbirthed, and he can't help but think that there are wolves around, lurking. You ever leave your children in a dangerous situation? And even though you've prepared your children for the dangerous situation, it doesn't make it any less hard, right? Like, you ever send your kids to college? Anybody ever do that? I haven't. Pray for me. (laughs) College is good, but college is dangerous, College is great, but college is dangerous. And you send your child to live on campus with no more parental supervision, with a bunch of knuckleheads, including your child, probably the lead knucklehead. You don't want to admit it because you're the parent, but it's the real. That's scary. That's why parents cry, not just because they're going to miss them, but it's like, man, are they ready for this? Do they know what's about to go down? There's an aspect in which your legacy communicated to that child, and now we're going to see the power of the legacy and the child's conduct, conduct on the campus. Paul's reminding them to lean in on Jesus' strength and not to lean in on their own strength. Paul reminds them, I'm sure, of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the chastisement of us all that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Y'all, I want to call y'all to radical weakness. Radical weakness. You can do nothing in your own strength. And anything you do do in your own strength blows away like chaff. It burns up like logwood. We need strength beyond ours. If we are to advance the kingdom of God in any, in any tangible, any effective manner, it can't be you. It has to be him. Embrace your weakness and lean in on his strength. Paul does that. We ought to do the same. Second point, Paul's legacy as a preacher of truth. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and 21 and 24. 
Acts 20, starting in verse 20, he says, I did not shrink, this is the middle of the verse, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 24. But I do not count my my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a sermon by itself. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We'll stop there. Paul's aim is to make Jesus known. His aim is to be a proclaimer of truth. He's reminding them that this is what he did while he was in Ephesus. He was a proclaimer of truth. Look what it says in verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why would he say that? Well, Ephesus is a place where uh, there was a progressive understanding of truth. The concept of truth there was up in the air. It was relative. It was your truth versus my truth. And so Paul decides and, and, and reminds them that he's going to be an ambassador of truth to the people of Ephesus and that truth matters. There's many people in our day, many of your neighbors, many of my neighbors who believe that truth is just this relative shifting idea, this shifting concept, that there's no such thing as like solid, absolute truth, but all truth is relative. And we know that can't be because if you apply the statement to itself, it defeats itself. We've heard this before. You ask somebody who says truth is relative, is that absolutely true? Because if the truth is relative and it's absolutely true, that means that there's at least one absolute truth. It means that that truth cannot be relative. So what's the, what, what are they saying? They're saying nothing. Just, they have no idea what they're saying. Absolute truth has to be. And Paul understands this and he believes that the word of God contains truth. And that that truth matters and that truth needs to be a herald of that truth. And he reminds the Ephesian church that he's a proclaimer of that truth. Look at verse 26. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here's my question. What are you a proclaimer of more than a proclaimer of Jesus? About 10 years ago. I'll tell you another true story. My sister can verify. About 10 years ago, there was a phone company that started to make major headway in the Northeast. It's called Metro PCS. And I started to preach the Metro gospel because it was $40 a month, unlimited talk, text, and data, no taxes included, no games. I knew all the terms and services. And so I started telling everybody about that Metro gospel, saving them from the tyranny of taxes and, and contracts, right? That's what Metro was doing. They were big time. And so we had converts. My sister came over, and you come over. Come on now. My sister came over. My cousin and them came over. My friends came over. Everybody was on Metro PCS because they talked to Kanan Parker. And you know you talk to Kanan Parker, you're going to hear that Metro gospel. I want to set you free from the bondage of your phone company. It wasn't too long later that the Lord started to reveal to me something. Like, I met people for the first time, and I would talk to them about Metro PCS far quicker, far easier, and far more ready than I would about Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. I recognized that I was a proclaimer of something far more than I was a proclaimer of Jesus. I was a proclaimer of this phone company. It takes your money. 
And some of us are that, we're that. We proclaim something. We're ready to talk about something. We're ready to speak about, some of it's health. Some of, some of us, we're the health lady and everything's about health. And you shouldn't need that. It's grease and GMOs and all this kind of stuff, right? But you never hear about the gospel of grace coming from their lips. What are we a proclaimer of more than we're a proclaimer of the gospel of grace? Think about it because we're all teetering on a line there. Well, we tend to lean towards something just a little bit more than we lean to the Savior in our verbal communication to others. Some of us preach our favorite pastor more than we preach Jesus. The church at Corinthians understand that. May it never be that we preach anything more than, than we preach Christ and Christ crucified. Paul reminds the elders there that when I came, that when he came, not me, when I came, I preached Jesus. I made Jesus known. I made Jesus a big deal. By God's grace, we can be Jesus preachers too. As we overview Paul's legacy, we see that he left one, uh, he left one a legacy of suffering and that he was a preacher of, two, of truth. But thirdly, he left a legacy of being dependent on the spirit. Look at verse 22 and 23. Acts 20, chapter 22 and 23, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Wow. What would be your response if God said that to you? What would be your response except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment, imprisonment and afflictions await you? What would be your reaction if you were a missionary and the Holy Spirit illuminated your eyes to see that in every city you go to, there's going to be pain and tribulation? That's scary. Paul is compelled by the Spirit to press on in his journey and to fulfill the mission, even though he faces afflictions in every city. It doesn't seem like Paul has too much clarity here, does he? Notice the only clarity he has is scary. He says, not knowing what will happen to me in verse 22. And the only thing he does know is pain and affliction coming. That's all he knows. You know what a lot of us do though? We make clarity an idol. And we won't move until God has made absolutely clear every single detail that we need to know in order to feel successful in the mission. God has called Paul to proclaim the gospel and to move forward in proclaiming the gospel, but he doesn't give him every detail. He just says, in every city there will be pain. Paul doesn't know anything other than that here. We need something that's better than clarity. We need peace. Peace trumps clarity 10 times out of 10. Paul is content with God's plan for him because he understands the sovereignty of God in his mission. Fear is the great incapacitator of life, and fear comes when things are unclear for us. Fear is what stops you and what stops me from doing what God has called us to do, and oftentimes we fear because things ain't clear. That makes sense? We have a, a fear of failure. We have a fear of the thoughts and opinions of others. We have a fear of a lack of return on our investment. But look what Jesus says in John 14. It's just, just John 14, verse 27, 28. He says, peace I leave with you. He didn't say clarity. Jesus didn't say clarity I leave with you. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's what Jesus says in John 14. And it's in this truth of peace and trust in Jesus that he can go forth and proclaim the love of Christ. Paul is demonstrating Holy Spirit dependence, which is important for our legacy. But our legacy isn't just based on what we accomplish, based on our peace. It's also somewhat based on what we've run from in fear. You guys know anybody who their legacy is, is marked because they ran from something? So I'm a boxing fan. I like boxing. I don't know if you guys like boxing. I like boxing. And there are two fighters that were preeminent when I was young. It was Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis, two premier boxers. But you know what they're always going to be known for, even though they were champions? For dodging Mike Tyson back before Mike Tyson went to jail. Their whole, y'all, y'all are baseball fans? Y'all know about baseball? I hate baseball. But if you know baseball... And you got the Barry Bonds and the Mark McGuire's and all these cats who got all these home run records. But what's next to their name? That little asterisk, right? Why? Fear. They feared not being whatever it was. They didn't understand. They didn't have peace. And so they cheated. And now their legacy is the cheaters. Not that they were good home run hitters. A fear can lead you to do these things. And sometimes our legacy is impacted by that one little shot they took probably more than one. Dependence on the Holy Spirit is observable by those around you and it's telling by the heat of our prayer life. If we spend more time preparing than we do praying, then we're probably depending on ourselves and we're guiding our mind by clarity and not by peace and not by dependence on the sovereignty of God because it's God who makes those plans come to fruition in the first place. Self-preservation and self-sufficiency is always leaking around the corner. And those are two tricky little things. Read the church at Laodicea if you want to see how sneaky it is. So uh, Paul's legacy as a suffering servant. Paul leaves a legacy as a preacher of truth. He leaves a legacy of being dependent on the spirit. Fourthly, Paul leaves a legacy of love and protection for his people. Look at verse 28 through 31 or through 30. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's another sermon. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. We'll stop there. Paul goes back to reminding the Ephesian elders to protect the flock among them because he knows that there are wolves lurking around the fence line to attack and to pounce. But you know what's unique about this danger? He doesn't just say that there's wolves lurking around the fence line. He says, some of you, some of the men he's eyeballing face to face during his departure, he looks them in the eye and says, yes, some of you remind you of something, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of remind you of Judas? as he sits around the table with Jesus and his disciples, and he says, someone's going to betray me. And here Paul's sitting there around this table of elders in the city of Miletus near Ephesus, and he looks around and he says, ah, I remember this scenario. Some of you are going to twist and you're going to turn and try to draw men unto yourself to worship you instead of the creator. There's another call to endurance of truth. One of the schemes of the devil is that he doesn't care what you believe as long as it's not true. 
And so he warns them to watch the flock, protect the flock, doctrinally, physically, whatever it takes, but to, to protect the flock. Because no matter everywhere the flock is, the wolves are nearby. And this is why so many churches have things like home groups. This is why churches have biblical counseling. This is why we gather on a regular basis. And when you don't see your brother and sister at church, you want to check up on them because the wolves are sneaky. The wolves are out there and you could be straddling the fence line and get snatched at any moment. And so it's the job of the shepherds to watch the fence line and to ensure that the wolves stay far enough back where the sheep can, can graze comfortably. The last thing you want to be is a wandering sheep. And so how do you know if you're becoming a wandering sheep? I'm glad y'all asked. You ask good questions. <laughs> One of the first signs is that you start to display apathy for spiritual things. Spiritual things just don't seem to matter as much as they used to. If prayer is an, eh, we'll get to that later type of mentality, then you straddle in that fence line. Something is bound to snatch you up and to take the seat of importance in there. They're starting to display apathy of spiritual things. Another thing, do you display a lack of care about being around the people of God? You see, when you're around the people of God, they help to keep you straight. But anytime something helps keep you straight, it's called bumpers. Anytime you hit a bumper, what happens? You kind of jolt a little bit, don't you? Y'all remember bumper cars and stuff like that? You jolt a little bit. But guess what? I don't like to jolt. I don't, like to, uh, I don't like doing that. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stay away from the people of God. That way I'm, I can do my thing and no one's going to call me out on my sin or the fact that I've, I've overstepped my boundaries in this area. So I'm just going to ease off the people of God because they take it a little too serious. Straddling that fence line. Do you display a broken heart over your sin or is it not a big deal? Oof, that's one that hits me right home. Because we're tempted to play fast and loose with the grace of God. And we don't see him as a mighty, powerful God who's able to judge the wicked. And so we sin and we're like, oh, there's grace for me. It's all good. It doesn't even matter. Not realizing that we have broken God's heart with our, with our actions, with our thoughts, with the evilness within us. For we have lacked in repentance. That's another sign. Has the thoughts and opinions of others been louder than the thoughts and opinions of God? It's another sign. Do you find yourself compromising on your holiness more and more? That's another sign. Here's a big sign. Are you isolating yourself? Do you know somebody who's isolating yourself, themselves? You got to break it. Isolate. Somebody, a sheep isolating themselves is like sheep just, just sticking their head right out the fence, just asking for it. We were built for community. God eternally existed in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And then he created us. And what did he say about man? Not good that he's alone, right? And so he, he made woman out of the rib. And they were to dwell together in community. And then what's, his, what's the very first, what's the first command in all the scripture? Be fruitful and multiply. So they multiply, go, make families, community, dwell together. That's what we're made for. Isolation is unnatural. Isolation is a result of sin. We're not supposed to be isolated. Supposed to be unified, community, together. Paul's care for the sheep didn't start when he was leaving. It started when he started there three years in. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish 
everyone with tears. Y'all, Paul's legacy didn't start at the end of his time in Ephesus. It started when he first stepped foot. And I'm telling you guys now that your legacy has already begun. Your legacy is already underway. And we need to be considering our legacy now. We need to consider how we care for our children now. We have to consider how we kill sin now because there is a watching world who will do as you do and use your life. You know, your life is the biggest sermon you'll ever preach. Your life is the loudest sermon. All of you are preaching a sermon in some way, shape, or form. Whatever venue you're in, at your job, you're preaching a sermon by your conduct, by your character, by your integrity, by the things you love, the things you laugh at. It's all proclaiming on your behalf. You don't have to say a word sometimes. Your legacy has begun. And it starts every day, but many of us don't take advantage of our legacy. You guys ever, like, waste a day? But you kind of like, the day comes, you're like, what'd you do today? And you're like, yeah, what did I do today? And you don't even know, because you didn't do nothing. Right? And you're like, oh, okay. Well, you, but sometimes that happens in a week. And, you know, in a church context, you know that. So how was your week? Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was all right. You know, what'd you do? I don't know. <laughs> there be some of y'all out there, right? You don't know. You waste the whole week. And then we look, and it's like our month, we didn't have anything important in our month. And then we look back in the year, and there was nothing of note in our year. And before you know it, we're kind of in despair, because we're like, yo, did we waste our lives? Like, you kind of look back at your, your whole life, and you're like, man, I think I wasted majority of my life. That's hard. The fact is, a lot of us feel that way about a lot of years in our lives. That we, man, if I could just have 2007 back, if I could have 2005 back and 2002 back, man, I'll be different. Things would be different. Things would look different if you could just have those years back. But the reality is, time is the one thing you cannot be replaced. You can't have it back. You can't. You can't rewind it. But you know what's beautiful about God's word is that it offers hope even in, the, even in the despair of losing time. The prophet Joel says this in Joel 2.25. God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Christ can redeem those lost years. Uh, some of you know, some of you don't. I was raised in a single parent home. Me and my sister, me and my sister were raised by my mom. And uh, my dad was not an integral part of our family growing up whatsoever. We'd visit him from time to time and go over the house and hang out, but he, it wasn't like he was like a father figure in our life. And there came a point as I grew up where I kind of dread I dreaded talking to him. And he would call my phone and I hit ignore on the, and some of y'all might even know what I'm talking about. You may experience this. And he calls and I'm like, boop, ignore, quick, because I don't want to talk to him. I wanted to hear the voicemail because I wanted to see if he was sober before I called him back. I got married, and I wanted my, me and my wife to go visit my father, but I always told her before we visit my father, I got to make this phone call, put him on speakerphone, and let's hear, where is he right now? And he answered the phone, and we know, okay, okay, it's, it's okay for us and the kids to go over there. He's fine right now. Or it's like, boop, and you hear the cussing and the swearing and the drinking and the slurring. It's like, yo, I can't bring my child in that. And so all these years gone by, fatherless, fatherless, father. You know what's funny? The passage of, of God restoring the years that the locusts have eaten has shown true in my life because now my father calls and I'm on the phone with this dude for like two and a half hours. And I'm just like, ah, ah laughing. And people be like, I thought you didn't talk to your father. I'm like, I know, right? Ain't that crazy? <laughs> because God can redeem time. 
There were decades lost that can never be redeemed. But for some reason, in some way, in some shape, God has reformed people and can reform things and errors in time. Man, if you have left a, a horrible legacy, if you have not shepherded your children or you know someone who hasn't, give them hope from God's word that he can redeem the, the years that the locusts have eaten. He can redeem that, y'all. If you're the recipient or the giver of those bad years, if you wasn't the mentor you should have been, the father, the cousin, the uncle, God can redeem that time in his own way. And he doesn't rewind it. He just does something miraculous. He restores it by drawing them closer to himself and then letting his grace permeate it. And Paul does this in verse 32 with the Ephesian elders. In verse 32, he says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's what we do. He commends them to God. I give you unto him and I give you unto his grace, which is what? Able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. I'm going to skip past a couple things here. Paul's legacy ought to have inspired us to leave a godly legacy of our own. Then Paul suffered well. He is a preacher of truth. We must be spirit dependent like Paul was. He wasn't worried about clarity. He was worried about peace and being dependent on the spirit with that. And, and he loved and protected his people. How are we stacking up in our, in, our, in our life? Let's look back and think about the legacy we've left. How do we stack up? You see, Paul had a Jesus-like legacy and Jesus had a Jesus-like legacy. But the rest of us, we need a savior. The rest of us need our legacy redeemed. The rest of us can't say back with Paul, remember those days. Many of us are in need of a savior to save the brokenness that our legacies have left. We need to lean on someone's legacy, a legacy that's able to heal and comfort the sufferer for all eternity. We need to lean on a legacy that's perfect and proclaim the word of truth in word and deed perfectly. We need to lean on a legacy that sends the spirit of God that will lead us into all truth. We need to lean on a legacy that offers eternal protection from sin, Satan, and self. We need to lean on Jesus's legacy. That's what the rest of us have to do. And so the, the thrust of this morning is to consider the track record and the fingerprint that you have left on this earth and to know and not, going to, not to go into despair at the legacy you've left, but to surrender that legacy unto the mighty power of Jesus's grace. It's okay if your legacy isn't all it's supposed to be. Not like it's okay to continue. It's okay that there's grace for you. It's okay that there's someone who can redeem that time and redeem those years and redeem those bad decisions by the transformation of your mind, by the renewing of your mind and the shaping of your heart breaks it down. And then you go and you be a Christian in their midst. You need to tell them and remember, I need to tell you and call you to remember Jesus's perfect life lived on our behalf. See, that's how the legacy's transferred. He lives the perfect life and he credits that perfect life unto the account of those who believe upon him. It's the great exchange. We give him the filth of our legacy. He gives us perfection. Jesus died in our stead and then he rose from the dead on the third day to solidify his power to give, powerful, uh, to give powerfully back unto our legacies. And this is offered free. If you want to know what a godly legacy is, a godly legacy is one that is redeemed by the perfect legacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our aim. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the, the truth of Acts chapter 20. 
in the Apostle Paul's remembrance of his legacy, the one that he left with the Ephesians. And Lord, it's, it doesn't look like my legacy. It doesn't look like these people's legacy. It's unique. It's different. He had highs, the Apostle Paul did, and he had lows. And he was broken in ways that we are not, and we are broken in ways that he was not. But Lord, uh, no matter what our legacy looks like, we need it to be redeemed by the perfect blood of the Lamb. Because we have lived imperfectly. And your standard is perfection. And so, Lord, we, a broken people, acknowledging our weakness this morning, ask that you would redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. And that you would give us a fresh, this morning, a fresh zeal to live godly in the sight of our families and our friends. And to show them that we are, bro- that we are broken and weak, but in Christ we can stand strong because we're leaning on his strength, not ours. Would you help us to do that and to be that this morning? You are able to, and we know you are. So we ask you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.